In late June of 2018, a dozen boys ages 11 to 16 from the Wild Boars Football Club and their 25-year-old assistant coach entered the Tam Luang Nang Non Cave in Northern Thailand. Tam Luang is located within a national park and is open to the public, though not year-round. At the entrance, a sign is posted in Thai and English stating the cave is subject to annual flooding and closed to visitors from July through November. The day the soccer team entered had started out clear and sunny, and the boys were looking for something to do to fill their time between practice and a teammate's birthday party planned for that evening. Soon after the boys entered the cave, it began to rain. When the time of the party came, the head coach started receiving worried messages from parents, saying that their sons hadn't come home. I made a decision to survive. When you're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. You're fighting against the company, you can't swim against it. You have to pull on the floor or pull on the walls, digging your fingers into the silt and pulling yourself along blindly uh, with your head into the current. The first person is laying a line so that you can follow it, you know, get your way back and make your way to that point again quickly in, the, in subsequent events. Uh, and also feeling around, imagine this, feeling around around you in case there are bodies floating around. So that's, that's a hell of a stress doing all those things. That's Richard Stanton, who goes by Rick. He's describing the conditions in Tam Luang Cave during one of the most remarkable search and rescue missions ever recorded. You probably remember hearing about the story of the Thai soccer team. The fate of a dozen youth soccer players. Their saga was one of those stories that transcended borders. Millions are following the desperate search of a cave that flooded with a team inside. For more than two weeks in 2018, the entire world was gripped by nonstop news coverage of the effort to rescue 12 boys and their coach from deep inside the cave where they were trapped by rising flood water. Frantic search for 12 missing boys and their football coach using thermal drones while hundreds of searchers are I, I feel I have just lost my heart when I found just his bag, mobile phone, and his shoes. A distraught mom calling out for her son. Rick is a former British firefighter. For decades, he has pursued an unusual hobby that made him one of the only people anywhere who would have a chance to save the lives of the boys and their coach, which is why when the team went missing, he was among the first people outside Thailand to hear about it. I had a, a Thai friend who, who lived really close to where the rescue was taking place and she rang me up and told me about there's a party of schoolboys lost in a cave. And I thought that people get lost in caves all the time, so that's probably no big deal. They'll eventually find their ways out. And then she said, no, they're trapped by flood water. And that immediately made me think, well, we actually have, amongst the world, as much experience or more than anyone about recovering and rescuing people from flooded caves. Rick is a pioneer cave diver and one of the most accomplished people in the history of the high-risk sport. He's explored caves that have seen fewer visitors than the moon. He's also skilled in the extremely rare practice of cave rescue. And yet, for someone with such specialized talents and unique experiences, he's casual and confident. The remarkable events that took place inside Tam Luang spurred countless news stories and two documentary films. But none of the accounts are as revealing as Rick's own take on what happened. Earlier this year, he published Aquanaut, the inside story of the Thai cave rescue with Karen Dealey. The book details not only the incredible story of the operation, but also Rick's fascinating journey into the world of cave diving. 
If you really want to understand what went down inside Tam Luang, you need to know how Rick became the ideal person to lead the rescue. And to do that, you need to start at the very beginning of his story. I would describe it as having a very ordinary childhood in a middle-class family. Father worked in a bank and was often away. I had a normal education. I was exceptionally shy. I didn't really talk amongst groups. I had a close number of friends, but only a small number. I was quite happy occupying myself and I'd go off fishing with a few friends. I think the main thing I recall from my parents was they never told me not to do anything. They just allowed me to do it and said, think what you're doing or mind what you're doing. And I quite like that. You see, children now always don't do that, stop that, come back from the edge. We weren't given those sort of instructions. We were just allowed to think it out for ourselves. Uh, One of the things that was consistent throughout my school years was that I had a very unruffled nature and that obviously holds you in good stead with cave diving so possibly predisposed to some of the sort of facets that you need to be able to go cave diving. I grew up in the 60s and 70s and at that time Jacques Cousteau, the famous diver, had series on the television and I was very much interested in them. I was good at swimming, I was sort of what you'd call a water person. But then when I was 18, there was a documentary on the television specifically about cave diving in England, and something about that totally resonated with me. I just identified with... They were not only diving, but they were diving with a purpose, and the purpose was to explore. And as a concept, I hadn't, I'd never really engaged with that. I thought exploring was something that had all been done in the early 20th century, and there wasn't much to go at. But here these people were exploring on their own back door in Yorkshire, in England. And so that, to me, opened up a whole set of opportunities which I wanted to pursue. In Aquanaut, Rick describes his youth being marked by a search for something he didn't have the word for. What his teachers mistook for apathy was actually an economy of effort that would later serve him well when he got into cave diving. After watching that documentary about the British cave explorers titled The Underground Iger, Rick became obsessed with the sport. And when he got to college, he found others just like him. I went to university and so I joined the caving club. They were similar age, 18, 19, 20, and we all went caving together. There wasn't any necessarily, I'm going to say, grown-ups with us, and we all learnt the principles of caving and what we were doing together. And so it was quite a slow learning process, but I think it gets you gets you further. You, you know, all the lessons are hard won. The people that I was at the university caving club with all those years ago are still very good friends. And it just so happened that even the weekend that the boys went into the cave in Thailand, I was away with these group of friends that I'd forged a friendship with more than 40 years prior to that. It is unusual for people to start caving or spelunking, as it's known in America, and then want to progress to cave diving. That isn't a natural progression. Most people are happy just to go down the dry caves, but I knew where I wanted to go. And again, like everything else, I just did it slowly, had some very minimal equipment to start with and started just going everywhere I could to gain experience with that equipment before progressing further and further. I knew that I'd enjoy being underwater. Just putting your face under and realising you can breathe is an amazing thing. I think it all goes back to that freedom. In the dry terrestrial world, you're constrained to being walking along the floor. But underwater, it's a 3D environment. You can float around a passage. You can see a hole in the ceiling and, like, fly up to it, like people might have in their dreams, flying around a house. You can literally do that underwater. That was one of the, the appeals. And then, uh, you know, after 10, 10, 15 years, we were starting to make a name for ourselves, exploring places in Yorkshire. Exactly what was done on that documentary, going to places where no-one had been before. And then we extended our horizons into Europe and we were making explorations in caves that were right at the top level of what could be done, or even beyond. We were sort of pushing the boundaries of what people thought could be done or, in fact, what people thought couldn't be done. And, of course, I think it needs to be said that any cave diving accidents are normally quite fatal. So we were then got called... Uh, upon to resolve various cave diving accidents and got a name for ourselves there. When Rick says resolved here, he means recovering bodies after cave diving tragedies. 
if you resolve an incident, then you're likely to be called for the next one and the next one. And so that's how that side of things progressed. When you picture cave diving, you might imagine stunning otherworldly environments. Those exist, but what has always captured Rick are the voyages into spaces that would make most other people extremely uncomfortable. There's different sorts of cave diving. There's the sort of cave diving you'd find in Florida or Mexico where the water's warm and it's clear and there's things to see. And that's what most people think of as cave diving. And the stuff that we do, vision is very limited. You've got a a mask on which is restricting your field of vision and often the visibility certainly isn't very great. The only thing you can hear is the sound of your bubbles. That's almost like a white noise. You're quite impaired with your senses, and I guess that's something I enjoy, but that clearly isn't for everybody. I'm not even going to call it a sport, I'm going to call it a pursuit. It's described as diving. I would say I'm not a diver. I haven't got any diving qualifications. I go caving underwater and I use diving gear to facilitate that, but I wouldn't really call myself a diver. There are, of course, there are risks. You know, you're immersed in a medium which you cannot breathe. However, the whole point of cave diving is it's a very slow and gentle activity. It's not like a high adrenaline thing like skydiving or or wingsuit flying or anything like that. Everything happens very slowly uh, to the point that I would say if you've got adrenaline, then you've certainly done something wrong or you're not suited to it. To me, it's quite peaceful being underwater. Now, there are lots of things you can do to mitigate the dangers of cave diving. So anything that might go wrong, you would have to assume that it probably will and have a backup for that, a backup plan, a backup item of equipment. So you always have two breathing sources, two independent cylinders with two regulators, two breathing mouthpieces. You've always got two in case one fails or often more than two. Clearly, there's no light there, so any light that has to be provided is artificial in the form of torches or lamps. So you'd always have more than two, probably three or more torches with you. So all these things that you can do uh, and sort of keeping within your experience level or only taking small incremental steps. Don't just go from a beginner to doing something that's clearly outside your experience zone. So yes, it's dangerous. Yes, people dive, but it doesn't have to be done in a dangerous manner. When Rick first heard of the soccer team trapped in the cave in Thailand, he and his diving partner, John Philanthon, knew that their extensive experience could be useful to the rescue operation, but they would need an invitation from the Thai government to get involved. Rick began sending emails with the help of the British Cave Rescue Council, outlining the skills that would be needed to complete the rescue and their own experiences using those exact skills in similar rescues. But at the same time, there was a British caver on the scene right from the start of the incident, and he could see what was going on, and his name was Vernon Unsworth. I'd never met him before, but he was very aware of my name and John Valanthan's name, who I do a lot of diving and these rescues with. And he could see that whilst there were thousands of people on the site in Thailand, on the ground and in the cave... None of them had any real cave diving experience and none of them had any sort of rescue experience of this sort. I would describe him as a grumpy old man in a nice way. I don't mean I don't mean that in a derogatory term, but he certainly felt confident going up to a Thai minister and saying to him, I would highly recommend you contact these two individuals. So with all fantastic credit to the Thai minister and his, the other minister that was involved... They took this information on board, contacted us, and had arranged a flight for us that evening. When Rick and John landed at the airport in Thailand, they were welcomed as saviors. But Rick felt their gratitude was premature. We don't really like announcing anything before anything's done. We'd have quite happily gone there incognito and just kept our heads down and got on with it in the background. And the first time we got on... to the actually to the cave entrance. The boys had been in the cave four full days then. It was dark, it was pouring with rain. There was mud, deep mud on the floor everywhere. And the, the most incredible thing was there were hundreds of people, if not thousands, and they somehow knew who we were. There seemed to be some sort of lack of coordination, even to the point of chaos. There wasn't a lot they could do because the cave was continuing to flood. Nobody knew how far into the cave the boys were, and the water had risen dramatically in the four days since they first went missing. 
The initial rescue effort had started with crews setting up operations about a mile into the cave, but pulsing floodwaters had forced the rescuers to move their staging grounds halfway back towards the cave's entrance. So now the rescue operation was a lot further back from where it had been the days previously. And that first night, it rained heavily. We were sleeping in a tin shack, and the rain was beating on the roof all evening and all night. And from my point of view, it didn't bode very well. We just thought the cave will fill to the roof, and that will be it. And you have to remember that flooding in caves catches out experienced cavers all over the world, and that's one of the principal reasons for, for cave rescue is, is flooding, because caves, of course, are made by water and they still often have water in them. So from our point of view, it was always getting more complicated than we thought. The next day, Rick and John decided there was no time to lose and chose to enter the cave to see what they could learn as the water levels inside continued to rise. By this point, there was water all the way out of the cave's entrance. They had maps of the cave thanks to the British expat who had recommended them for the job, Vernon Unsworth. He had spent the last six years mapping Tam Luang, which he said he knew as well as his own home, but he was not a diver. Rick and John expected to dive through three sections of cave flooded to the roof before reaching a chamber, but when they arrived in that chamber, they encountered something completely unexpected. We reached the third chamber and there were some people there, and that surprised us because one, they were trapped, and no one had told us that anyone was still in the cave. We had been told the cave had been completely evacuated the afternoon previously. And we looked at these people, realized they weren't boys, they were adults. And in the sort of conversation we had, we realized they were pump workers that had missed the evacuation call because they'd been resting in an alcove and got themselves trapped, and no one knew that they were missing, or certainly no one had reported them missing. So that's all led us even more to think how chaotic this whole scene on the ground was. And we had to rescue them immediately. One, we didn't feel there was enough time. The water was rising around them so quickly that we didn't feel there was enough time to go out and organise a, a proper rescue. And secondly, there was no one there. There was no other cave divers like us on the site. There were many people in the Thai Navy SEALs, but there were no experienced rescue divers there. So we decided to rescue these four people between us there and then and take them out to the entrance. The distances we had to bring them out was only short, 10, 10 yards at a time and three times. But they, like most people in Thailand, they might be able to swim a bit, but they're not in any way natural water people. and. I best describe it as an underwater wrestling match. We were wearing two cylinders, we'd put one regulator in their mouth, grab them round the back, hold onto them tight and dive through with them. Their heads were being banged, you can't see anything. Uh, but the moment we started going up, they realised there was probably airspace, though they weren't necessarily correct. And so we really had to hang on to them as they were struggling to get away from us. And if they got away from us, we wouldn't have been able to locate them in the murk because you couldn't see anything. So we really had to hold on to them and the line at the same time. So it was a bit uh, daunting for us. They were keen to get out, but they certainly didn't have the means to sort of prevent panicking. And so that was adults and the distances were very short. Now, we didn't even know that the boys were alive or where they were at this point, but we realised if they were going to have to dive out a long way, that we were going to have to come up with something to stop panic. Around the world, members of the small community of cave rescue divers started hearing the news reports about what was going on. Among them was Dr. Richard Harris, who lives in Adelaide, Australia. I think it was about one or two days after the boys went missing, I just noticed a very small clipping in the local newspaper about a soccer team lost in a cave in Thailand that was flooding. And given my background with volunteer cave rescue and sump rescue, operations, which I'd been leading some training for in Australia for the last 10 or 12 years, I started to follow the story. And it was a, a bit later on that I heard that Rick and John had arrived on scene. And very quickly, I started messaging Rick, if there's anything we can do to help, let us know. Rick was fairly despondent fairly early on, saying that um, 
probably there's nothing to be done actually. This, the situation looks awful. The cave is undiveable initially. The chances of the boys still being alive seem very slim. And even if they were found, it was probably going to be a body recovery, not a rescue mission at that stage. But you have to imagine this is a horizontal tunnel. No one had studied what would happen there in flood. Everyone assumed the whole of this horizontal tunnel would be underwater. Five days had passed since Rick and John arrived on the cave site. After their initial dive and the rescue of the four pump workers, the cave had become virtually undiveable due to the rising floodwaters. For the tragic death of a Thai Navy SEAL who was diving in the cave, all diving was halted. But on Monday, July 2nd, 10 days after the boys were first reported missing, conditions improved slightly and permission was given for Rick and John to finally dive the cave again. You can imagine that we've still no knowledge of quite where the boys were. We'd been given information where they might be, but we weren't in any way certain. You couldn't see anything in the water. And then we surfaced in a place that was neck deep in water. And as I'd been progressing, I had been, any time our heads were above water, I would take my mask off and sniff the atmosphere because the caves have what I describe as a very neutral smell, maybe a bit earthy, but a sense of uh, smell gets quite acute when there's nothing else, when when it's just neutrality. So we were certain we'd smell them. And at that time, at that furthest point, when we'd reached it, I. I instantly smelt and told John to take his mask off and confirm, not that it was really necessary. And then just as we were having a chat, we heard voices and then saw a light shining down towards us. We weren't sure what we were going to encounter. This was their 10th day they'd been in the cave. They hadn't had any food with them whatsoever. We had a a little camera, like a GoPro camera with us. John got that out. And that iconic video of them sort of making their way down the slope and into view. That's exactly what we saw. People coming down, I could count them as they were coming round the corner and down the slope and positioning themselves in front of us. And I counted 13 before or just as John had uttered those words, how many of you are there? And that was it. And they were completely calm and stoic. I mean, if you re-look at that video, some of the younger boys who are like 11 and 12, a little bit in tears at the bottom, but they were... That was generally what happened. They were completely calm and composed and barely even surprised to see us. John was saying, believe, believe to himself that this was real and we'd found them and they were all alive and all quite healthy. They'd carved a couple of ledges on this ledge so they could like all, all lie together. But there wasn't much in there. It was muddy walls and a sandy floor and just up this ramp. And just to give them something to do, at the very top, they'd started digging their own escape tunnel. And from where their location was, they were probably 3,000 feet below the surface, a long way horizontally, so there was no chance of ever getting out. But I still wouldn't discredit their attempt. It just gave them focus, it gave them something to do, and and it sort of distracted them from their predicament. We tried to reassure them. Uh, and, and comfort them. It's OK, it's OK. Many people are coming. Many, many people. We are the first. Many people come. What's Monday? And Monday. You have been here? <laughs> Ten days. Ten days. You are very strong. Very strong. If the current had been strong as it had been on the previous Thursday or Friday, we probably wouldn't have been able to get back to them. So there was always tempered with, we really might be the only people that ever see them. We knew that the best thing we had to do was get out and and inform the others. One, the good news that they're all alive. There's two of us, you have to die. And get on to the next phase. We'll be right back. Rick Stanton and his diving partner, John Philanthon, were shocked to find all 12 boys and their coach alive some two and a half miles deep inside Tam Luang Cave. Navy SEALs are now taking food and medical supplies to the boys that are trapped down there. One Navy SEAL is even staying with them to provide reassurance, but it is two British divers who first found them who have decades of experience. Risking their lives for a lost soccer team who, until this moment, they had never met. How many of you? 
13. Brilliant. Our whole journey out, we were thinking, we've made the promise to come back, but I actually don't know how to rescue them. It's a long way. It's not very nice underwater. We've, there's no precedent for this. I was unclear that how we were going to get them out. The boys' plight captivated the world, and however misplaced, for the first time there was hope. And with hope came more help. Once Rick and John surfaced in Chamber 9 and found that soccer team alive, of course, everything changed, and not just my interest, but I think the, the world's interest changed on, on a phenomenal scale. I thought as a doctor and a cave diver, maybe with these boys being alive, there, surely there must be something I can do. Maybe I could dive to the end of the cave and help support the kids whilst the extrication plan came together. My communications with Rick just increased in frequency, and but, but similarly, his, his concern or despondency about the chance of getting the kids out alive seemed to increase even further, to be honest, and he really felt that there was no possible solution to getting the, these kids out. The Thai Navy SEALs sent two teams into the cave to the boys who would remain with them until a rescue attempt could be made. Meanwhile, everyone from experts to government officials to Elon Musk were offering theories on how exactly to rescue the boys. We had no idea how to bring them out. We knew it was going to be a huge task. We knew that panic would be the, the biggest thing, not only from our experience with those four pump workers very early on on our first proper day in the cave, but also, you know, we've been involved in other events, we've been involved in rescue practices, and even once, maybe 25, 30 years ago, I was doing a rescue practice with a very experienced diver and I was leading him out as if he was a non-diver in the sort of equipment we would then later use in Thailand. And he effectively panicked underwater in a cave that he was aware of because it's hugely disorientating. He assumed that I was getting us lost, which I wasn't, and he ended the exercise, which is fair enough, but that always stuck with me, that even someone that's used to cave diving is not comfortable being underwater and led. So that, that always played in my mind, and it just seemed the obvious thing to do would be to sedate them. I think it was on Thursday the 5th of July I was actually at work. I was in the operating theatre. I'm an anaesthesiologist in my day job and Rick uh, and I were exchanging messages early that morning before I went to work and then he, he suddenly just sent me this message saying, what do you think about sedating the children to bring them out? You know, I just sort of did a double take when I saw that message. I, I couldn't even believe he was proposing it. It just seemed ridiculous. The idea of rendering someone unconscious and pushing them underwater for what would be, I gathered, about a three-hour journey through very difficult underwater terrain and zero visibility. I just thought that's just a death sentence for those children. He needs to definitely come up with something better than that. But I just reiterated, look, if you want us to come over, I'm happy to do so. And I think it was on that basis. And in his mind, I was coming to, to anaesthetise the children. I wasn't coming to do anything else. In my mind, I was coming to do anything but anaesthetise those kids. The only problem was, of course, as Harry rightly pointed out, no one had ever been sedated underwater before. There was no precedence for this. There's no history. There's no knowledge whatsoever. So this was really where we were uh, sort of writing the rule book as we went along. So I was fairly insistent on diving the cave the next day and I also just needed to see the children with my own eyes and have a look at the environment they were in. I just couldn't even conceive of doing what was being asked of me until I'd got a, a clear mental picture of what the place looked like and what the children looked like and, and that I would be safe in the caves. My recollection was that the cave dive was, as Rick had described, indeed a bit sporting and it was quite an arduous dive, about a three-hour journey through still fairly high flow water, not, nothing like what Rick and John had experienced early on, and that the water was genuinely zero visibility. I mean, I had my eyes closed half the time. There was no point turning a light on or opening your eyes for most of it. It was just braille diving, really. You're just feeling the rope as you left the cave. And then in the, I'll call them dry chambers, they were still canals full of water, but, you know, you'd have to wade up those canals carrying your cylinders and then back underwater again. And then as we surfaced in Chamber 9, seeing the children for the first time was just extraordinary. And to some degree, it actually put some of my fears to rest because the children looked really good. I mean, 
They looked very thin, of course, but they were all standing and walking and, and talking. Their morale seemed high. The Thai Navy SEALs were there, and they are extraordinary guys. You can imagine very tough and upbeat and positive-looking people. But the environment was really oppressive, and I thought, these children can't live in here for very much longer. It was just oppressive, the smell in there. It's only a matter of time before they succumb to infection or start to have problems. And I could hear a couple of the children already coughing and thought that chest infections are already starting in some of the boys. That was the first time when I realised that we're going to have to do something to get these children out of here. The other knowledge I had at that stage was from a, a briefing the night before which told us that we only had about a three to five day weather window before the monsoon rains would return in force. Suddenly I realised that there was a huge time imperative and there was no chance of these children coming out by themselves, scuba diving under their own steam or even in the company of another expert diver, having now seen the cave for myself and realising how difficult and complex the underwater sections of the cave were. Experienced cave divers can always remember their early dives and know, reflect on how challenging and frightening that environment is when you start. And it was very obvious to me that the children would panic in very short order and panic underwater is certain death. And not just for the children, but probably for the person who's trying to escort them out. Without any realistic or viable alternative and with the impending rains that would take the matter out of their hands, Dr. Harris agreed that sedation was their only alternative. He brought a handwritten note with him into the cave and asked Dr. Puck, the Thai Navy medical doctor, to relay the plan to the boys. And I was just watching the boys' faces and honestly I can just say they were just like nodding, yep, no worries few thumbs up as if this was the most natural idea in the world and I did see Puck give me a slightly sideways glance as he was halfway through this note because this of course was news to him as well and it's um, a credit to his professionalism that he didn't you know attack me and throw me out of the cave for proposing such a monstrous idea but the kids were extraordinarily relaxed and I wonder if when you are so desperately trapped with no hope of escape and someone offers you the hand of salvation, you will take it and it doesn't matter what the hand looks like. And I think I, I left feeling that I was the only person in the room who genuinely still believed that this had no chance of success. The obstacles facing the rescuers seemed insurmountable and yet there was no viable alternative. Dr. Harris would be unable to supervise the children to monitor their airway or give further doses of anesthetics when they inevitably wore off. That would be the responsibility of the divers who had little medical training. It just seemed like a plan that was at, at best ludicrous and at worst, you know, I, I felt like it was probably euthanasia that we were performing. And I, I think at the end of the day, it, it ultimately came down to this binary decision for me that either I get on a plane and leave Thailand and leave these children to die and knowing that would be a, a very awful death for them it would probably take two to three weeks and they would die of starvation and exposure and infection, let alone the psychological impact of that on the kids. And also that these Thai Navy SEALs would also die because they would not leave those children, I was sure of that. Or we just do something, even if it was a terrible idea. And in many ways, it's easier just to do something than to walk away and leave people to that fate. I mean, I think to feel like you're taking active steps for the children, it was a lot easier to do than to do nothing. And I think I consoled myself with the idea that when these kids inevitably did perish, that at least they would be asleep when that happened and that their bodies would be returned to their parents. We had seen despite the fact that it's, it's now established there were 5,000 people were involved overall, and that includes people doing the washing, people providing clothes, people providing food, all the journalists, massive amounts of military. The Thai Navy SEALs are actually operating in the cave, diving. If it wasn't us that was going to come up the plan and lead the rescue, there was no-one else there with any background in that whatsoever. We also felt, you know, we found them, that, that moral obligation... Um, my friend who was with me while we were there 
she said, I totally changed the moment we found the boys because all my efforts were directed into how were we going to get them out. It it was a a bit of a no-brainer. It had to be us. There was nobody else there that could have done... that could have had those skills or had that experience. And, And so you can't just walk away from something like that. You have to step up to the mark. In all, it took the rescue divers a week to plan the rescue, jumping through political hoops and racing against the weather. The monsoons were coming, but the divers could not afford to rush. Cave divers were called from around the world, and every effort was made to test all the logistical components of the mission. I'd asked to go to a swimming pool in the local town with some boys who had come from the swimming club, and we practised the sort of actual technique we were going to use to bring the boys out. That was to ensure it worked, to iron out any issues with that. And we walked through that with... We had things replicating cylinders, things replicating the boys. We were confident in all of that. But the only thing that hadn't ever been practised was the fact that, you know, how would people be sedated underwater? There was still no knowledge base on that. So it was with that in the weighing heavily on Dr Richard Harris that we went into the cave on that first rescue day, which was the Sunday. There would be four core divers paired with a boy who would take turns guiding one boy at a time throughout the entirety of the cave, a journey they estimated would take three hours. Then there were teams of divers along the routes assigned to a specific task. Dr. Richard Harris was in Chamber 9 where the whole team waited. He was the first to arrive and the last to leave since it was his task to administer the sedation. Another diver with some medical training was stationed in Chamber 7-8 who would check over the boys after the first dive. Two more divers were also stationed in that chamber, waiting with a stretcher to transfer the boys over a dry bit of cave. There were always two divers in each canal section who would swim with the boys, giving the rescue diver a chance to prepare for the next dive. We all took up our positions. I described it as processing the boys. The first boy was processed. I found myself surprisingly calm, and I mean, I have performed medicine in strange environments before. I felt like I could just put it in that work box and just, this is just another day at the office. Gave him a Xanax tablet to sort of calm his nerves, put him in a wetsuit, put the jacket on. After the jacket, then he walked down to the water's edge and Dr Richard Harris would inject him with the ketamine that was going to completely uh, sedate him, completely unconscious. The injections would have hurt because I was poking a decent-sized needle through their wetsuit into their leg and, and a big volume of anaesthetic drug. It would have been bloody painful. So, And, and it clearly was because you could see them screwing their eyes up, but not one squeak from them. They were, they were amazing. And then the next thing, of course, was having to tie the children's hands behind their backs. Restraining a child's hands behind their back when they're unconscious with their face in the water, a very impactful moment, I think, in, in my life. And then a very clear recollection of pushing the first child's face into that disgusting water and thinking, this is, this is about as low as I can go in terms of my morality, not just as a doctor, but as a human being. It felt like drowning kittens almost. It was pretty confronting. We dispassionately come up with a plan. We described the process in the boys, we described everything. That doesn't prepare you emotionally for the two and a half hours, three hours you're responsibility for that one person and that person cannot help themselves and they're relying totally on your intervention and so huge huge responsibilities the greatest risk to the boys was i've talked about in cave diving you have redundancy so if anything could go wrong you'd have a spare one but the boys were put in a full face mask and a full face mask has a seal the integrity of that is is the most crucial thing so that really relied on our skill as divers to make sure that the child's head, face, mask were completely protected at all times. Jason brought the first one out. He couldn't see a thing, very twisty, and I was at the receiving end to see Jason and his boy come out, and I was to go back and feed back the information. Yes, he made it, all is good. The sense of tension, we could feel the line twitching as Jason was making our way towards us. Uh, and when he surfaced with the boy, we couldn't see him breathe. And it was Jason that had to look up at us and say, he's alive and he's breathing. And we had to 
pull the boy out and uh, take the mask off him there and then and look after him and carry him for a bit. But it was that, that first tension was enormous because we really didn't know. Dr. Harris was the last to leave the cave, having no idea if any of the boys had survived. To be told by one of the pararescue team in Chamber 3, where the diving operations essentially finished, that four out of four kids were still alive at that point. I, I, I was obviously very pleased, but it dawned on me for some reason that how on earth have we gotten away with this? This is some kind of fluke. and. And I actually was more worried that night than I had been at any other stage during the rescue. I had this dreadful sense of everything was going to come unraveled the next day. The first day, we didn't promise 100% success. That didn't seem in any way likely. There were so many things that could go wrong. So the fact that the first day was 100% success was an enormous, not only relief and vindication for the plan, but, but a real uh, morale booster. But there were still things to go wrong. There was no time to be complacent. There was equal chance of something going wrong on third, you know, second or third days. And, of course, the rain on the roof of the hotel, wondering whether we were actually going to get back into the cave the, the next day and thinking now about all those children who I, I'd met and started to get to know, thinking that maybe we won't even get back in there to, to help them and they'll still be... Um, condemned to that dreadful fate that I was worried about. The, the remarkable thing about the second day was there was nothing remarkable and no-one can think of anything to say about it. It all worked just like the first day, except we were more rehearsed, more practised, and we achieved the rescue of the four boys even quicker. One thing of, of note was on the first day, we assumed that the authorities would know who we were bringing out just by recognising them, but they didn't. And so nobody knew who we'd brought out until the boys regained consciousness in hospital. So on the second day, we wrote then their three-letter nicknames on the back of their hands so that people had more of a clue. So that was, if that was the limit of what we had to change, then I think that sort of speaks for itself, that we had pretty much thought of everything. On the third and final day of the rescue, there would be five sedations instead of four. Four boys and their coach. So we did the first four, including the coach, and then we were faced with the last boy who turned out to be Mark, in fact, the smallest of all the kids. And I thought all the smallest kids had gone, and then this tiny little figure comes down the hill, sits on my lap. It turned out he weighed 29 kilograms, so a really tiny kid and Jason and I were there pretty much alone in the cave, apart from the Navy SEALs, and we had these two masks to choose from. One was a commercial diving mask, which was actually far too big probably for any of the kids and certainly wasn't going to fit this little boy. And the other one was this tiny little pink recreational full-face mask, which didn't have the positive pressure function, so I was very loath to use that as well. So the kid had to go off to sleep because he was already in the water, he was already starting to shiver, and then we, we started to play around with these masks and, and in the end and ended up using the, the little pink mask and it looked terrible. The seals were all folding up and it didn't look like it was going to work and so I sent Jason off with that boy and really thinking that this was still going to end in, in disaster, at least for this, this final little kid. So I packed up my gear, said goodbye to the, the Navy SEALs, who we expected to follow out pretty shortly afterwards, and um, headed out of the cave kind of alone with my thoughts at the end of the day. The second from last one was being brought, brought out by Chris, but there was one exceptionally awkward bit in the, the last bit of the dive, just before breaking surface in Chamber 3, where you met all the other people, there was a very awkward, what I would best be described as a sort of slot that you had to post the boy through and then follow on behind, and the line was extremely tight and out of, the, out of reach at that point, and Chris lost the line and couldn't regain it. It's extremely dangerous to lose a line, especially when it's a complicated passage shape, and it could be, as it was here, the line was trapped in a bit you couldn't reach. You couldn't really follow a wall very easily because it's so intricate. And, of course, you can't see. Maybe see six inches or a foot at the most, maybe probably less. It's a hugely worrying. I could see there was a light down the far end of the chamber and somebody called out to me, Harry, is that you? 
And I said, yep, and I recognised it was, was Chris Jewell. And Chris told me that he had lost the line in that section and had become disorientated and had been swimming around for quite a few minutes with his boy threatening to, to wake up underwater. And he was completely you know, bamboozled in the zero visibility and had popped up into a, a dry chamber and initially had thought that it was a new part of the cave that no one had been into before. And so he thought he's stuck there with this boy who's starting to wake up and he's off the line and no one knows where he is and he's got no way of finding his way out. He was understandably very frightened and upset. So when I found Chris, he still looked pretty pale, but, you know, he, he was uh, getting ready to, to go again. But I just said, well, why don't you just relax and take your time to gather your, your thoughts and I'll take the boy through this last little section. I, th I feel really happy for Harry that Harry brought this child out the last, I don't know, 80 yards or something, 70 yards himself, and that sort of completed the picture for Harry. He'd been processing all these boys, sedating them and sending them off, uh, and he ha had at actually said at the beginning that he wouldn't be carrying any of the boys because he wasn't so familiar with that sort of diving or that cave. But at the end, he carried a boy, the last last bit in what you'd call the home straight, and I think that was a real, real good um, conclusion for Harry and a sort of vindication, again, of, of his technique and, and ability and, and just to, to carry that last boy home. Before the rescue in Thailand, Rick and Dr. Harris were both confident, calculated and meticulous people with an eccentric pastime. They both told us that really not much had changed for them in terms of their outlook. They did the job they felt a moral responsibility to do, but their unusual hobby suddenly had a very practical and important purpose. I think uh, most of the cave divers approach this with a very pragmatic perspective, knowing that we have this slightly unusual skill set which was very much required for this particular rescue. I think it was an American correspondent who described me as a unicorn after the rescue because of this sort of improbable skill mix that I had which uh, seemed designed specifically for this. I'm very proud, I think, like all the rescuers, not just the cave divers, should be, that we just rolled up our sleeves, did our best to solve what seemed like an insolvable problem. And that, that came from years of experience working to perfect our craft or our, our passion. We never thought it would be useful to anyone else, but we do dedicate ourselves to this sport of cave exploration. I mean, we're just this random bunch of middle-aged cave divers from all around the world who they had no reason to trust or believe in at all. It certainly changed the way I have lived my life. It hasn't... I don't believe it's changed me as a person. I would say... Like if you're a soccer player, you're at your prime in your 20s and by the mid-30s, you're sort of a bit too old for Premier League. But cave diving is a very strange activity. Uh, whilst it's physical, it's also largely mental and best cave divers are sort of late 30s and all through their 40s and early 50s. That's sort of when you've got the, the, not only the most strength and stamina, but the, the sort of you've got the most experience. I'm 60 now, I still occasionally go diving. I've got some trips planned for uh, next month. I was quite happy I'd been retired for four years before the rescue. One of the things I had said to myself, I wanted to try new things and not always follow the same path, but nothing could have prepared me for what was going to happen after Thailand. Since the cave rescue, there have been innumerable articles written about the ordeal and most recently, a documentary by Jimmy Chin and Chai Vassarelli titled The Rescue that's available on Disney+. There's even a star-studded movie by director Ron Howard set to come out this fall where Stanton is played by Viggo Mortensen. It's not bad for a quiet, loner kid from Coventry. And of course, there's Rick's own account of his life and the rescue titled Aquanaut. It's quite a remarkable story. People are always saying I should write, have written a book about my adventures. I certainly having not only participated, but being an, an influential person in the rescue, that certainly gave me a voice to write my book. Of course, the story we're telling is from the Western perspective for very practical reasons, but both Dr. Harris and Rick stress that the children really owe their own survival to themselves. I'm quick to point out that the real heroes in this story are those 12 boys and their coach who I don't know how they found the resilience and courage to just survive that 
10 days before Rick and John found them. I mean, just picture for a moment sitting on damp mud, two and a half kilometres underground, very cold, incredibly hungry, no food for all that time, in the dark by and large, trying to conserve what little light you have. And just day after day, the increasing feeling that there is no escape from this place and we are going to slowly die here and never see our parents again. For most people, that would be overwhelming and many people would literally just curl up and die in that situation. And what is it about these kids and their coach that they found this courage and resilience to hang on and not just hang on, but actually keep their morale up and Whilst I'm sure they had some very dark times, by and large, it sounds like that coach did an amazing job at keeping their spirits up, keeping them busy, helping them meditate. I don't know what it is that that made them so courageous. Perhaps it's the Thai culture of sort of patience and, and resilience, or whether it's their Buddhist faith, or whether it's just their tough country kids who have not had easy lives. You know, a lot of these kids were stateless refugees from Myanmar and they've become accustomed to doing hard things and doing life a bit tough. And I think there's a message there for all of us that we really need to take on challenges and, ad and adversity when it comes up because um, unless we don't build that resilience that's necessary for the inevitable challenges in life, I've learned a lot from those children, that's for sure. It was a feel-good rescue. There's not really much negative about it uh, and all the things that have happened since have largely been positive and good. I say I've structured my life to avoid children very successfully. Uh, and so it's quite ironic that's what I'm going to be remembered for. This episode of Out Alive was produced and written by me, Louisa Albanese, along with Zoe Gates and Emma Vate. Editing was by Michael Roberts. Scoring and sound design was by Jason Patton. Thank you to Richard Stanton and Dr. Richard Harris for sharing your stories with us. You should definitely check out Rick's book, Aquanaut, which is a just fascinating account that goes into so much more background and detail than we could hear. Thanks to listening to Out Alive. And if you have a backcountry survival story and you're interested in sharing, you can email outalive at outsideinc.com. This season of Out Alive is brought to you by Stillhouse. Out Alive is made possible by the members of Outside Plus. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at backpacker.com slash outsideplus. Plus.